And welcome to Let's Jaws for a Minute, the podcast which takes a deep dive into Steven Spielberg's 1975 classic film Jaws, minute by minute or thereabouts. I'm Sarah Buddery. And I'm MJ Smith, and I'm recording on my computer again. Woo! Uh, yeah, so before we get into that, thank you for bearing with us through the ups and downs of a crazy release schedule in the first quarter of the year, and also some maybe not so great audio quality on my end, which uh, I'm sure annoyed me more than it did you. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so from here on out, I, presumably we should be all right. We've only got seven of these things left. So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. wow, Fingers we are crossed. in single digits. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. So we don't have a guest this week. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and a, a, a thank you to Harley as well. I can't remember yes. if we mentioned it on any other previous episodes, but um, our good pal, friend of the podcast, uh, Harley Mumford from the Fundamentals Pod, he stepped in and edited um, three episodes, I think, for us, uh, which so. was really helpful and just meant that we weren't going months without putting any content out. So yeah. um, he did a great job on those as well. I enjoyed the little bits of spongebob audio that were inserted into them when it was taking us a long time to google stuff that really made me laugh (laughs) oh uh i need to listen to those episodes is what i've learned i did not know yeah it's so it's so funny because i'm used to obviously just like hearing us or hearing a guest and then suddenly it's this like five minutes later voice that comes out of nowhere and it really made me laugh (laughs) that's pretty good yeah (laughs) Uh, pretty good yeah, uh, that's really that's really funny. Um, <laughs> I didn't know he did that. Yeah, my uh, so we we have some of these episodes banked. Um, so you might hear us talk about stuff. The, the timeline's just weird right now. Um, <laughs> as as far as you guys are hearing this one one week at a time, but some of these episodes have been recorded three or four weeks uh, ago. So our timeline might be kind of kind of screwy. So do bear with us on that it shouldn't be too bad but like as at time of recording we're recording episode 73 at time of you hearing this uh the 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 last episode that came out was episode 69 nice um and yeah so this is uh oh this is our our this is the our our april fools episode so just kidding everyone (laughs) Not just kidding. Uh, <laughs> nope. I, I don't. I don't have a weird Jaws prank in the in the barrel. Uh, hey. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say this could be the episode that we reveal that like we've been told uh, by some uh, people connected to Spielberg that there is in fact going to be a, a sequel or a prequel about Quint or something like that. But uh... yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> The uh, this is where we reveal we're actually AI. We just fed we fed ten thousand <laughs> hours of minute by minute podcasts into an AI, yep. and this is what it's been spitting out for almost two years. Hey, I'm pretty pleased with the results. Uh, yeah. the technology is. <laughs> yeah, we're it's we're improving. pretty good at our AI jobs. 
Wow. I mean, what a way to start an episode. I... Yeah. <laughs> Let's get Sarah and MJ aren't real trending on uh, on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it explains a lot. I mean. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> Why do people listen to this? Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, anyway, I think we're a little slap happy from being able to record proper. Uh, once again, if you couldn't yep. tell. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, no guests this week. Thankfully to anyone who would have guessed it this week, who would have been like, what the fuck is happening, you guys? <laughs> um, so, yeah, this uh, this scene is one minute and one second long. So very much coming in around the thereabouts section. Uh, <laughs> you can't get more thereabouts than this, I think. And the timestamp is from one hour, 52 minutes to 56 seconds to one hour, 53 minutes and 57 seconds. And it's all underwater basically. So we kind of start with the, uh, the cage lowering into the water and we see Hooper and the cage get submerged. And then we <clears throat> find ourselves in the water with Hooper with some underwater photography of him in the cage and then uh, the shark swimming straight towards the cage and uh, right past it, having an, a near miss with the cage. And this is, and I, we will absolutely be talking about this, of course, um, this is real shark footage. So um, one, of, one of a handful of times where, where they employed the use of actual footage of an actual great white shark uh, in in the film it happens a handful of other times throughout but uh yeah more on that later and in later episodes so sarah what did you notice about this uh scene yeah i i guess the first thing is coming off the back of our montage sequence that we had last week and it's quite a i wrote in my notes like quite a, a, a bombastic montage like there's a lot happening there's a lot of action uh, the music is quite sort of um, stirring as well. Uh, Roy Scheider is topless, just mentioning that again. Um, so a lot happening in that previous scene. That in contrast to this, like particularly from that moment that Hooper goes under, sort of the you get the the bubbling sounds uh, as he's sort of taking his, his final breaths above the surface and then going under. The silence, I think, is so effective and... This is really, I mean, something we've been talking about a lot in in uh, recent episodes is how the film uses silence. And I think that it's so effectively done in this scene as well. And it's not just the the silence, it's the sudden transition from light, you know, bright, sunny morning, afternoon, we're not sure, but whatever it is above surface to then being like, really really dark and scary and sinister and silent <laughs> underneath and I have seen this film so so many times uh but this is the most nervous I have ever felt for Hooper and I think just watching these moments in isolation as as we've sort of spoken about so many times is it just really everything that is that is tense is scary is 
funny, is thrilling, is whatever, whatever this film is trying to do, like watching it in these sort of moments of, of isolation, it just heightens everything about that. So mm-hmm. yeah, the the sort of transition to the the silence and the the darkness as well of, of this scene as we sort of go underwater um, was what really hit me watching it this time around. Um, one of the things that hit me was sort of, I think, and I have no proof of this necessarily, so this is basically just wild speculation on my part, uh, though I have some shreds of proof, uh, I think, uh, or some, some, some shreds of evidence, at least, that I think can point to that. And that's that that scene, this scene in particular, very much wears its influences on its sleeve um, mm. in a really good way. Uh, so the first one is, and we've referenced this before, the James Bond franchise. Spielberg was a mm. big James Bond fan. Um, he... Uh, offered up his services to uh, direct Bond films twice in the 70s mm. and was rejected by Eon, um, uh, <laughs> who are notoriously, like, cagey, pun not intended, pun very much intended, about who they let into the Bond franchise and into the Bond family, and they very much like to kind of keep it uh, almost strictly European, Um as far as that goes. Uh, so, yeah, he didn't get his, his chance to, but we've, we talked about there's a reference to 007 early in the film with the uh, the license plate is from Louisiana and has the number 007 on it, and that's a reference to Live and Let Die, which I think was filming around the same time. Um, so it was, it was a nod to that, but this is Thunderball. Uh, and yep. it's not it's not directly one to one a reference to it, but Thunderball is a very 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 technically well made James Bond movie that I find incredibly boring um, <laughs> because there are gigantic sections of that film that are underwater. Like there's a full on underwater battle sequence that happens like two armies fighting each other underwater and it is very slow but Mm. very impressive uh but it is not entertaining (laughs) and uh i think that was one of the first movies to really do a large scale underwater section and Mm. i think because of that uh spielberg would be like oh yeah we gotta get some underwater stuff and we've had underwater stuff in the past with uh ben gardner's boat but this is like it's basically an action scene that happens underwater. This is the climax, and it's one of the, the 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 hinge points of the end of the film is is all the underwater stuff with Hooper. Um, now, where I think it improves on the Thunderball thing is it doesn't spend a ton of time underwater. Um, <laughs> while it's very cool and very technically impressive, that that Thunderball sequence is it's so slow because you just move slower underwater. Uh, it's no fault of the people who made the movie, aside from the fact that they don't wanted to show off what they could do, maybe a little more than was necessary. Um, but yeah, so I think this is a good use of underwater filming. Um, and the other influence is The Exorcist, uh, which I know seems, uh, kind of strange, but, uh, here's... Here's what I have to say about that. In The Exorcist, it is about Reagan, this little girl who gets possessed by a demon and uh, two priests as they struggle both with their faith and their uh, needing to uh, perform this exorcism to make Reagan safe once again. Now, what does that have to do with shark in the water? It is not a demon shark. This is not the titular Ouija shark. 
However, uh, the 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 Exorcist employs this device of everything outside of Reagan's room is a totally safe place. But once they enter Reagan's room, uh, pun intended, all hell breaks loose every time it happens. And that really reminds me of this. They're mostly safe on the Orca. Yeah, it's taken it on the chin a little bit. But they're still above water, mostly. And they're pretty safe from this shark. This is now them entering the shark's house. Like, very aggressively entering where the shark lives. Like, they are in, like, Hooper is in the water with the shark. There is, mm. no, there is no other way about it, which is sort of like entering Reagan's room. And in The Exorcist, the biggest moments of tension come not from the crazy horror stuff that happens in Reagan's room, but when the priests show up and they talk to Reagan's mom and they stand outside the door or they walk up the staircase, like all those moments leading up to opening the door and like opening the door is like ripping the bandaid off kind of. Um, this is very much the same. In the previous scene, we had the buildup to putting the, the montage, putting the shark cage together, all this like tension ramping stuff. And now we're ripping the bandaid off. It's kind of like going down on the roller coaster, right? Like the, we've, we've crested the hill and now we're mm. on the, the, the descent, uh, quite literally, with Hooper. And it's really tense because of that. Like it's not like, you know, it's not not scary when we go into Reagan's room, but the buildup is what makes that scary. It is not not scary watching Hooper uh, or the stunt person representing Hooper. Um in this scene, but the buildup is what made it scary. Like we know, oh, like the movie goes out of its way to ramp up. Hey, this is a big deal. We're finally going to like tackle this shark head on. We are no longer taking pot shots at it from the boat. We are, we're going into its room. We're going into its house. We're going to confront it on its own territory. And then there's also just the idea that humans pretty much at a disadvantage in, in, in the water um, as we are not aquatic creatures. So there's that very, there's a very like great primal uh, fear, uh, not the, the Richard Gere film uh, that, that, that happens in this scene where it's just like, you know, we've talked about it. You and I are not scared of the ocean. However, if I have to go fight a great white shark in the ocean, yeah, I'm going to be scared of that. <laughs> Yeah, this is actually, this is a really good point, actually, about the, what's different this time with sort of a character or, you know, someone in the film entering the the shark's house because Hooper is going down there with the sole purpose of killing the shark. So I think then that makes the the silence, at least in the beginning, obviously we get the, the sort of the shark score um come out in in a minute but uh, like what i can remember of the other times that we've been underwater there's been sort of um you know background music or, or other sounds and things like that you know mm -hmm. obviously in the the scene where the shark is is about to strike and, and kill alex kintner there's you sort of it's interspersed with like the splashing and the screaming of the kids and stuff so it's not like completely silent like this bit is and though i mean chrissy and alex are sort of entering the entering the water you know to have fun and and you know play or whatever it was they were were doing and not knowing 
that there was this this threat that was there and hooper when he was going down to explore ben gardner's boat he was confident enough to go down like without a cage and with hardly any equipment so he Mm -hmm. was not preparing to sort of face the shark then or or even come across the shark you know he literally just went down on a kind of fact-finding mission of like what has happened to this boat and you know can i find any evidence and obviously that's when he finds the the tooth and um loses the tooth but yeah that's you know what he goes down to to find is this sort of evidence but this is it it does feel very very different and i mean i've I've not seen the exorcist because i'm a big wimp uh but that comparison is really interesting of this sort of the safe space and the unsafe space and there's something i think that's why i feel particularly nervous this time around about watching hooper go down into into the the shark's house if you will because we the film has been sort of really ratcheting up the the tension up to up to this point the the shark's attacks on the orca seem to be more more calculated or more thought through as much as a shark is able to you know sort of pre-plan an attack but we've spoken about how it's sort of like playing mind games with them and uh the the tension is really increasing as we are sort of heading right towards the the end of this film when the shark leaps onto the boat and and sort of exits the 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 space that is safe for the shark which is the ocean and sort of launches itself onto onto the boat um it, it is so extraordinary i think that 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 is what happens and it is almost like well one of your <laughs> one of your guys came into came into my house uh he was lucky that he got away so i'm about to come into <laughs> come into what was your safe space originally and it's like those lines start becoming more and more blurred don't they in these in these moments of like what is the safe space and what isn't because right. it's like it's either going to be the shark that gets killed or one of these guys that gets killed at, at this point in the film so yeah that's an interesting thought actually i hadn't really hadn't really considered that idea yeah i mean it it this is this is where we kind of cross the line right like this is this is a point of no return decision for yeah. everyone and this is this is what kicks off i mean we've got what 10 minutes left of this movie so mm-hmm. um gosh he he goes into this cage so much later in the film than i think he does yeah right it's, it's every time every time <laughs> i've seen this movie so many fucking times and every yep. time I'm just like, oh yeah, Hooper's still got to get in the cage. And then it's almost the end of the movie and I'm like, Hooper's still got to get in the cage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I think doing it this way around, and there's been a couple of instances where I've like watched the film all the way through and like mm-hmm. every single time it gets to a point in the film where I'm like, oh my gosh, there is still so much that has to happen. Like all of the stuff with Hooper in the cage, like Quint, the showdown with the shark, like everything that happens so late into the yeah. film. It's kind of, We've got a lot of stuff to to talk about on this home stretch. <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't feel rushed either. Like none of this feels like it's it's sprinting towards the end. Like it's definitely ramping up, but none of it feels like they've 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 uh, edited around it or taken huge chunks of it that like would have mattered in the end. Like it's it's very well paced, but it just I think because I think that's why we think about that um, mm. because every time. I, like I said, every time I watch it, Hooper goes in the cage, and I'm like, the movie's almost over. There's so much stuff that needs to happen, and <laughs> uh, it 
yeah, I think it just goes to show how well-structured and paced the film is to begin with. But watching it in isolation like this, it's also just like you appreciate the individual parts that make up the whole. And in this scene, it is definitely the the tension. I love the way this is shot with um, mm. us looking at Hooper and watching him adjust his mask and then looking up terrified at mm-hmm. the shark and then switching to to Hooper's POV and seeing the shark swimming towards it. it's such a great reveal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I wanted to mention the the sort of the great eye acting, <clears throat> so I'll get onto that mm-hmm. in a in a sec. But I I really like the shot as well of as the cage is being lowered and we get this uh, shot from sort of like below looking up, and it is very very similar mm. to the the shot of you know from the shark perspective sort of seeing chrissy mm-hmm. and alex kintner as well so it is immediately instilling in us that fear of like oh i remember when i've seen shots similar to that in the film before and the result of that has been someone died and i mean we will we'll get into this later i think but the uh, hooper was meant to die and even when making the film like that was still the intention it was only because of something that happened in in the filming with the real sharks that they had to change change the story so having that shot there is is very very deliberate but as a you know obviously (laughs) hooper's fate ends up being being different and and he does survive but it's it's putting that fear in us straight away of like all the other times in the film we've been in that position of like looking up even though it's very i think it's clear that we're not in like you know first shark perspective in in that shot mm-hmm. it is you know hooper doesn't know that i mean the the, yeah. the shark does sort of it comes from the other direction but it does kind of come out of nowhere i think in in next week's scene when we, we sort of you know it comes up behind him doesn't it so it is plausible the 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 unusual way that we've seen this shark moving and and acting so far it's not completely unreasonable to think that that is you know the shark perspective like looking up at hooper and then sort of like quickly swims away to you know to to strike later on um but yeah that i i love that switch as well of 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 hooper adjusting adjusting the goggles because it is that classic hooperism as well mm-hmm. like we we've spoken so many times about him adjusting his glasses or cleaning his glasses and it doesn't matter that he no longer has his glasses on because he's he's got his mask and the way he sort of adjusts that uh is is similar to the way that we've seen him adjust his glasses in previous scenes so i i really really like that and the being able to show so much in just your eyes as well i think is a real skill and a and a real talent uh so some great eye acting uh from from richard dreyfus because we we see the fear in his eyes before it then switches around and we see what it is he has seen that is making him feel scared. Um, And we know, (laughs) we know by the look on his face, we know, you know, based on the film that we are watching, uh, what is probably about to happen, you know, where he is as well. He's down in the cage with the sole intention of of finding this shark and and killing it, hopefully. Um, But it's so great the way, the way that that is staged, like the whole I mean, I know we're sort of talking about it in chunks, but this whole sequence of Hooper underwater, I think is really one of the like strongest aspects of the film. And it does so much with no dialogue as well, because he's underwater. He can't, you know, he can't talk. We don't have any 
dialogue at all in this scene. I think this is maybe maybe the only scene that we've spoken about where there's been absolutely no speaking whatsoever. We've had limited dialogue, we've had extended moments of silence, but mm-hmm. I might be wrong, but I think yeah, I think this is the only bit we've got that is like all silent. I no think you're I think you are right about that. Um <clears throat> so what you're saying is suck it Tom Hardy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. <laughs> Um, I don't know why we had to pit two actors who worked 45 years apart against each other who are known for eyeball acting, but here we are. Um, Feels correct. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. This, uh, I think to uh, shout out to those of us who had to read Lord of the Flies in high school. Um, mm-hmm. Didn't learn how to do checks. <laughs> learn how to analyze Lord of the Flies. Uh, Same. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but what we learn in, in that is that glasses represent clarity of vision and thought and wisdom. And mm-hmm. we've talked about this before, uh, where, you know, when Hooper comes in and he does the autopsy or examination of the remains of Chrissy, and he does that, it's it's him bringing into focus for everyone else what happened here, like... Um, mm. stating it very clearly. And this is the first time we get a very clear shot of the shark. Um, granted, this is not the shark as far as Bruce goes, the puppet, but this is, <laughs> uh, uh, it, it's still all the same character. So this is the first clear, very clear view we get underwater of the shark that is terrorizing them. We have not had that. We've seen it above the water. We've seen it underneath the waves. We've seen it uh, pop out of the water. But this is in all its glory, full on, in its uh, on its own turf, the first time we've seen it, I think. I could... Mm-hmm. I Right? Am I right about that? I, I think so, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's okay. been the sort of like the overhead right. shots where you've seen a lot of like the scale and size of the shark. But yeah, right. this is... These, this whole sequence of the, the underwater footage is really where we get the the most shark in the sort of one block. Yes. Um, I better be right about that or else my entire analysis falls apart. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so because of that, like it's 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 interesting that we're we're repeating that motif of him messing with the the you know the thing that gives him sight underwater, right? Because he would. He would not be able to have his eyes open for that long sans these goggles because of salt water. Um, And now that he has this apparatus that helps him do that, he adjusts it and he sees the shark um, in its 25-foot glory and terror all all at once for the first time. So um, I think that's really good. Uh, I don't know how intentional that was, uh, especially because the guy who wrote War of the Flies when people started doing that to, to, to Lord of the Flies came out and was like, I didn't mean most of that, but yeah, go off. Um, so I don't know how intentional it was to, to keep the glasses going uh, as a motif, but it, it works really, 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 really well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm now imagining Spielberg listening to uh, this podcast, in which case, hello, Mr. Spielberg, big fan of you. Hi. Um, but <laughs> first, hi. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, us reading all these things into it and him being like, I didn't mean any of that. But <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I guarantee it. 
Yeah. I would wager but... an exorbitant <laughs> amount of money on him if he ever listened to the show being like, these are crazy people. <laughs> Look, I would be very happy for Mr. Spielberg to come onto the podcast and tell us we're crazy for yes. an hour. Like, yeah. <laughs> an open so, invitation uh, stands. Yeah. Um, <sighs> it could be, I mean, in, in this case, it could be... <laughs> Sorry, I just, I just pictured Spielberg being like... The, the most pertinent thing anyone said on this podcast is shark big. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's like, that's exactly what I was trying to convey yeah. with my film. They nailed it. The shark is big. <laughs> yeah. Took you 50 episodes to get to shark big, but here we are. Yeah, we made it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> remember what I was going to say now. Oh, the I mean, the glasses thing, it could... I there's little things like that that I like to think could be a a character choice by the actor like that mm-hmm. seems to to make more sense to me than it being something that is I know these things can be sort of uh you know behind the scenes thing or in the script or in the kind of process of making the film where it's like this character always does this thing because of these reasons but it could feasibly be something that that Dreyfus sort of thought of like you know this character <clears throat> wears glasses he is this sort of um educated professional you know shark expert type of thing if i if i'm going to be wearing glasses or whatever then maybe you know that will be a thing that i do that there's these sort of moments where the character requires clarity or is about to sort of give clarity to to other characters as we've seen as well the times that he's cleaned his glasses is sometimes before he's about to you know deliver a a matt hooper truth bomb or something like that um so that that could be it as well like it 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 could be a it could be a dreyfus thing more than a than a spielberg thing i don't know i mean until we get these people on the podcast and ask them we're gonna have no ideas (laughs) it's just speculation (laughs) yeah i mean i i think uh spielberg has definitely left room for that um as a filmmaker i know there are some people who are very like meticulous about like getting every every word in the script right because it all means something like the cohen's i think are really much very much like that like there's no improvisation or like a ton of room for character choices specifically within the dialogue i think but i think especially once they get locked into a character they're very meticulous about the actor performing the character consistently and this is obviously a consistent behavior with with hooper it's not you know we've seen him do that before but i think the cohen's exhibit more control over that than the actors on their sets that said obviously Mm -hmm. they're very good at directing actors and have incredible performances on there there's no wrong way to make a movie for the most part so um that is not an indictment of the cohen's whatsoever they're some of my favorite filmmakers but spielberg uh he doesn't play loose obviously like he's a very meticulous filmmaker if you look at any of the shots he has in most of his films they're extremely well thought out and clearly agonized over but at the same time you also have stories of like matt damon and saving private ryan who has it's I think it's my favorite scene in the movie where he talks about his brother with the, getting caught with the girl in the barn and the barn catching on fire. That supposedly, I can't verify this outside of IMDb trivia, which is dubious at best, uh, <laughs> but I've always heard that he improvised that story, that that story is something that Matt Damon came up with as Private Ryan. Um to kind of fill in his own backstory and it makes a ton of sense like it 
and I think it it, 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 a lot of people think that that's surprising. And I, maybe I've played enough tabletop role-playing games to know that it's kind of not. I think once you <laughs> like, once you inhabit a different character, right? And not to say that my D&D playing is on the same level as Matt Damon and Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> but I think if you have never done any sort of like role playing like that um and you you do end up doing that, you can surprise yourself at kind of what you come up with in character. Um once you once you get in the the headspace of that character and like so the point I'm trying to make which I think is getting <laughs> is getting kind of lost is that I have seen an experience around a table with just like a couple friends and beer and buffalo chicken dip, uh, not in Oscar worthy performances, but a lot of really good improvised on the fly storytelling about mm. a character that my friend is playing who is not themselves. So absolutely, I think someone who is Matt Damon can do that. Um, <laughs> So I think, you know, the, 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 the trust that Spielberg has in his performers to perform consistently and within, you know, just to say, hey, yes, you're making pretend. Yes, there are words written for you on the script, like Ian McKellen talking in extras about how he became Gandalf. <laughs> but uh, yes, you, you have all this pre-written for you, but I also trust that you inhabit this character and you've filled in their backstory and you know who they are and you know what experiences they've had. That is the job of the actor is to inform the written words on the script with what's come before for this character, even though it's not in the script. So mm -hmm. Dreyfus doing this, I think, is an informed choice on whether or not it is the allegorical sense of glasses represent clarity of vision and wisdom and clarity of thought and focus, or if it's, hey, this guy's kind of neurotic and anxious and has a nervous tick, or if it's probably little column A, little column B. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, I... I mean, all, all the examples you're giving there sort of it, it makes sense, and a an actor that is a good actor won't just go by what's you know what's been written for them. Obviously, like there there are cases where you know it's inappropriate to kind of go wildly off off script, right. and I imagine that would be very very frustrating for uh, for directors. But there's also Unless kind of you're magic that can yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's also magic that can come from from those improvised moments or from those things that that weren't planned. I mean, they talk all the time about that. Um, is it in Django Unchained when Leo like actually cut his hand and oh, his yeah. hand was bleeding and he just like carried on yeah. <laughs> and you know gave? I mean, we don't know what the other takes of that would would be like if his hand wasn't bleeding and right. he probably should have been like stop i need a medic but he, he carried on and the take that that sort of comes out of that is is incredible and there's there's things mm -hmm. like that 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 just happen in the movie making process and i absolutely see that in in jaws and i mean we occasionally have sort of referred to the script and stuff haven't we i mean like you, you can access it uh, for free online so we've right. sort of looked at that and then we've notice like deviations or things that are that are different from the script to what is actually said or done in the film so there are these things that that just sort of happen 
you know happen on the fly and a lot of that is you know the the choices made by the actors to do what feels right in the moment and I think that that I mean not being an expert in these things at all not been in a film not made a film but I feel like that is the best way of kind of getting uh what feels like an authentic performance is being given that sort of freedom to not go completely off the rails but to to make these like small informed character choices that that actually make the film better as as a result of that or it's you know provides us you know two people discussing this film some almost 50 years later things that 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 we pick up on you know there's this this thing with the glasses that we're talking about now like we can look at that and say oh this is what that thing what that thing means but the actual thought process behind that could be a very you know a very very different thing or you know like you said just a a tick or just something that 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 the actor feels that character would do in that moment but i think it's it's interesting to think about like especially obviously in the context of of jaws and i mean part of me is like obviously robert shaw notorious kind of heavy drinker behind mm. the scenes like how much <laughs> how much of that kind of informed the the choices for quint uh yeah. being, of him being like i think this character would be a heavy drinker and I am willing to commit <laughs> to yeah, well, that. <laughs> and also, you know, I don't think that the the all the yo ho ho and a bottle of rum stuff he says on when he's leaving is in the script. Um, no way. <laughs> it, it, like I think that that they came up with that on the day. Like they were just like, and then Robert does some stuff. You know, like yeah, yeah. Th- those, those are definitely <laughs> moments. Oh, apparently, uh, by the way, the. Uh, Peter Bart's book, The Gross, is the source for Matt Damon improvising the speech about the girl in the barn. So it is in a book. There we go. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, this shark is real scary. <laughs> <laughs> shark big. Yeah, shark big. And uh, this is where we get into, this is real shark footage that was uh, captured by Ron and Valerie Taylor, who are Australian um wildlife documentarians specifically marine wildlife uh documentarians who are like especially in 1975 a number one with a bullet the go-to people for great white shark footage they are considered pioneers uh within the uh the business of capturing footage of great white sharks. They're the first people to ever capture footage of great white sharks while not in a cage, which means that that couple has balls of steel. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, yeah, so that's, that's how we got this footage. So at a certain point, we are not seeing Richard Dreyfuss in this cage. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I would say from the point of, uh, at least in this one minute, from the point of him adjusting the goggles onward in mm-hmm. this minute of footage, I don't think it's Dreyfus at all, and I can prove it. Um, but I'll get there. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and I apologize if I'm stepping on your on your notes, Sarah, but they filmed this in Australia and then just kind of shipped the footage to, to Spielberg. Spielberg hired them after hearing about what uh, they were able to do. So they got this footage and we'll talk more about some of the footage they got because it heavily informed the direction of the story. Like you talked about. 
uh, mm-hmm. but we're not there yet. So I want to keep that as a surprise because I didn't know this until I looked it up today. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but they captured this footage, but the sh- the great whites in Australia are not 25 feet long um, or even 20 feet long. They were 15 to 16 fo- feet long. So they used a smaller cage and a smaller actor uh, in the cage who freaked the hell out when he got in there. Um <laughs> Uh, and uh, that also informs stuff later on down the road. But uh, that's why the shark seems so big when they shoot it behind the cage. It's really great mm-hmm. force perspective because the cage is smaller and the actor is smaller. The shark looks massive. Yeah. <laughs> shark big. Shark big. Yeah, this is, uh, this is my favorite bit to... Well, favorite and probably most annoying bit to watch with other people because I can like point out all the bits that are like real shark and not real shark. Yeah. So I will sit there and be like, real shark, real shark, not a real shark. Uh, that's not real. That's the real shark. <laughs> and it's probably very annoying. But I also like to think informative uh, to the people that I am watching it with. But that the bit when the, um, in this bit that we're talking about now, when the shark is sort of approaching the cage that i believe is is real shark and then Mm. there's an an, towards the end of this bit as well when the shark is sort of swimming like overhead almost and we get like a real close close look at him that's real shark um but the bit when it is kind of like going past the the cage and is like very very close um i believe is not the real shark i mean that it's it's a blend like it is I think it's done really, really well. I think if you if you sat and paused it and like really, really kind of picked it apart, then you probably could uh, spot the bits in it where it's where it's you know it doesn't all sort of line up as it should. But I think in terms of the effect, it's pretty flawless. Uh, and this, <laughs> I mean, I feel sorry for the the, the little guy who had to go in the tank. Uh, because or in the cage because this is in um i believe it's in the making of jaws which is one of the documentaries on uh it's on my blu-ray so i'm assuming mm-hmm. it's on on yours as well mj um actually the whole thing is on youtube which is where i i was watching clips of it earlier because i just wanted to to remind myself of, of sort of like the filming of this scene and we don't get into the the behind the scenes uh filming stuff that often just i feel a lot of people know about it already like particularly our audience who are big big jaws fans like they they know and understand this stuff already but i think particularly important in in this scene uh because as we will get into it did inform a pretty key thing that happens with the with the character later on and also just to acknowledge i think the incredible work of ron and valerie taylor as Mm -hmm. well i mean Mm -hmm. they get a credit uh, the sound guys who we praised don't, yeah. <laughs> but but they sure do uh, get a credit, and and they deserve it to be fair because there is that certain aspect of of putting your life at risk and and sort of going above and beyond to get that footage, and uh, something sort of pretty dramatic happens later on in the footage, but it the effect of sort of having this this smaller person, and yes, you can. I think you can tell it's not <laughs> Richard Dreyfus, um, but in making this shark look absolutely massive in comparison, I think it really, really works. And I think that you know we haven't had that much, if any, like real shark footage up to now. But actually having it in in this very, very 
key important scene in the film i i think is super important um and really just makes it feel more terrifying than it than it already is um i think particularly when you know that that is a real shark (laughs) and that was a real guy in there yeah and also a real cageless uh camera person yeah (laughs) that's the thing that gets me every time i watch i'm just like the camera person was not we talked about this i think last week camera people go through hell getting the shots for these movies we we talked about the the james bond camera person who had to potentially break their neck uh Mm. wearing the heavy camera and then had to open their parachute the slowest the closest to the ground (laughs) yeah Yeah, I mean, these people risking their lives uh, to make films, we appreciate it uh, because the result is great. But also, I mean, I'm glad it's not me. <laughs> yeah. So the stunt person in the in the in the the cage is named Carl Rizzo, and uh, he has a completely different hairline than, than Richard Dreyfuss. <laughs> That's the big tell. Uh, his hair is longer, I think, but. Um, he's also built differently. Uh, he's, he's got, he's got more of a gut than, uh, than Dreyfus does. And, uh, <laughs> you can tell in the wetsuit. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's the, that's the actor in the cage during the real shark, um, footage. I think also I want to say there's a documentary about the Taylors called Playing with Sharks, um, that is available on Disney Plus if you're interested in that. I think we... We'll watch it at some point and probably discuss it in one of our episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think particularly in the the episodes that we've got coming up, kind of the the real shark footage. Yeah, uh, it gets sort of, yeah. I mean, there's there are bits when the shark is very much not real, like when it is slamming into the cage and yeah. stuff, uh, or into the side of the cage, and you can normally tell because it's got its little its little jowls, uh, the sort of thing that makes yeah. the, the, the little, mouth move the little mouth hinge yeah yeah <laughs> which i love i think it's very i mean we have we talk all the time about how much we love the shark effects in this but mm-hmm. i i think it's in these scenes that you really get that sense of this big kind of tangible thing being there and that is through this combination of it actually being a shark a real shark that is there and blending it with that footage for obviously the the bits that they you know couldn't film with a with a real shark because you can't train a shark you can't make a shark do what you want it to do you can't make it try and eat the cage so there are obviously certain things that just wouldn't be fair on on a shark to try and get them to do just to to get the footage so that's where the mechanical shark comes into it but i I mean, this is one of the things that that people talk about with sort of like a a remake or if anything, or if, you know, there's one thing that people criticize about Jaws, it's the shark effects. Mm. And we've said many times about how wrong that that is and a reminder of the year it came out and also what incredible things they were able to do with the limited, you know, access, if you will, to to the prop because... It being notoriously unreliable meant they, you know, had to use the barrels and use the score and use other things to sort of stand in place of the shark and, and not show it as much. But, you know, the 
result of that being how effective it is the moments that you do see the shark and i think that this is one of the most effective moments with the shark because we've had moments of peril for sort of peripheral characters i mean mm-hmm. we like chrissy we've got nothing against her she seems like a great gal uh we also like alex kintner seems like a sweet little boy nothing against him but like we don't know these characters well, in the way that alex we... wanted 10 more minutes in the ocean and <laughs> after he screwed and he up didn't... Yep. he had it coming yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, I'm now I've now got the song from Chicago stuck in my head. <laughs> <laughs> but, about but it's Alex the sharks. Kinder, yeah, it's the sh- yeah. It's like, like a chorus line of sharks. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, doing can can kicks with their flippers. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely that. Um, I t- <laughs> I did have a point. Yeah, the obviously you know the, uh, those moments are shocking and significant. I mean, particularly Alex Gintner because we're seeing a kid like die on screen like it's pretty it's it's pretty intense and it's pretty mean as well like uh not really something that is seen in that many films but like the the peril that we feel in this scene because this is hooper uh, that is you know we've spent so much of this this back half of the film any one of these characters sort of having uh extended you know a period of interaction with this shark is gonna make us feel is going to make us feel scared. So yeah, it's, I don't know, hits different this scene, I think, (laughs) especially watching it this time around as well. I think a lot about how Hooper was supposed to die. And, um, yeah, I, obviously we just speculate about whether that's better or worse or whatever. And it's, this is going to be interesting coming from me. Um, I don't like the, I don't think I like the version where both Hooper and Quint die. Um, Mm. I think that, I think that having Quint die gets the point across. Um, but I don't like the idea of like Brody being that traumatized through this event. Um, and Mm. the reason that's coming as a surprise for me is because I always want people to die in movies. I'm like, there there is, (laughs) there are so many movies where my biggest criticism when I come out of them are like, that person should have died. Like, there's no mm-hmm. re- there's mm-hmm. no reason for them to have lived outside of, like, bummer endings don't make people happy, but I don't care. Like, that person should have died. Like, and not even, <laughs> and I don't even mean, like, um, like a superhero movie or, like, a John Wick movie. Like, John Wick should be dead by now, obviously. I don't mean in that sense, but I mean, like, it looks like a character is headed towards their end and then they like come back at the last second or whatever. Like, I think Jaws does it well. We'll get to it, obviously, with a kind of ambiguous, like Schrodinger's Hooper situation. But there are so many movies where it's like, oh yeah, this person died. And then they're just like back. And you're like, ah, come on, man. (laughs) Like, I don't know. To me, it seems toothless. And I think... I think more movies would do well to kill some of their secondary characters Um, and some of their main characters, if I'm being perfectly honest. Yeah, uh, right. Here's me uh, having a small rant about one of the things I hated about, uh, what was the, the latest Star Wars? Rise of Skywalker? Rise of Skywalker, yeah. Yeah, right. 
I hated it, okay? A terrible film. That's not a good Didn't one. like it. Uh, but one of the things that... One of the many things that annoyed me about it, but perhaps the most egregious, um, apart from course correcting everything <laughs> that well, had happened yeah. previously, um, was how many death fake-outs there were. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of the things that I... I mean, I've tried to erase that film from my memory. Oh, the Chewbacca really thing? The, yeah, right? And there were so many other ones as well. Like, I'm sure it happens where you think Ray is going to die mm-hmm. and then, you know, Kylo Ren saves her or, or something. Like, there were a bunch yeah. of things that happened like that and they kept doing it and there were so many that, like, every time it happened, I wasn't... I didn't feel anything. I wasn't like, oh my goodness, that character has died and this is really sad because I was like, they've already done this 10 times previously in the same film. You think that character is dead and then they come back and everything's going to be fine. So then when a character like did actually die, my memory is so bad. Kylo Ren dies in the film, right? I don't remember. (laughs) Okay, someone dies. Uh, Gosh, the Star Wars fans are going to come for me now. So sorry. I've watched it once and I never want to see it again. Um, But then like, you know, the, the moments where there are like actual character deaths, I felt nothing. I didn't feel any emotion at all because I was like, well, you know, He's probably he might just come back. Like, uh, you can't have that many fake outs with, uh, with, with like major characters in particular, and then expect me to feel the emotions that I meant to feel when something bad does actually happen. Like, yeah, I don't know. Like, it, it just this idea that anyone can anyone can come back and, and like superhero films do it as well where like even if it's not you know that version of them like another version of that character will be safe in an alternate universe so that's fine and it's i get it and sometimes it makes for a good storyline but uh, it, i don't i think that films shouldn't be so scared of like killing off major characters so i'm as heartbreaking as it is that that Quint dies, I'm glad that Jaws does go to that place. I think mm-hmm. had all, I think had all three survived, it wouldn't have been so impactful. And I think, I mean, I'll say it. I think if two had died, it would have been, like you said, too much. Particularly like for Brody as as well yeah. to to cope with. I mean, all the stuff that he's gone through already, but having you know him being the only person to survive that i just don't like the idea of like i know it's a character but i just don't like the idea of him having to carry that you know probably guilt <laughs> for the rest of his life like like quint had to you know the survivor guilt that we that we talked about with quint but yeah glad that jaws goes there but glad it yeah. also doesn't take it so far that you know they all die or more dies <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i think there's a balance to strike there um just a small uh, trigger warning and spoiler warning all at the same time. Uh, trigger warning about self-harm and suicide and spoiler warning for the film The Night House with Rebecca Hall, which is a horror film. Uh, so in that movie, she is uh, haunted by her dead husband, essentially. Not really. Um, she's haunted by the memory of her dead husband and then finds a separate house that is a reflection of her own house. And she finds out that uh 
her husband has been taking women who look like her to that mirror house and killing them. And then he eventually kills himself. And the whole thing is set up that there's this spirit telling him to do these things. And it's telling him to kill Rebecca Hall and himself. So he starts killing these women who look like her to appease the spirit, eventually gets the best of him, and he ends up taking his own life as well. The entire movie is an allegory for intrusive thoughts and suicidal ideation, and I think that that is absolutely a great way to do that. Um, the film ends with, because the husband has gone, the spirit finally finding Rebecca Hall and her struggling with these same things. The final shots of the film are her possessed by the spirit, sitting on a boat with a gun, contemplating taking her own life. The film really, 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 really builds up to this thing is gonna win. Hmm. And then her friends yell at her until she doesn't kill herself. And I remember leaving that movie and being in a very weird headspace where I said she should have killed herself, which is a horrible thing to think. But the movie did so much to make you think that that's where it was headed. And I think that it would have made a really poignant point about the nature of dealing with these things and how it's hard. And it doesn't, you don't always win. And like, I think it could have had its cake and eaten it too. Like that's obviously a very like um, sad ending, but I think it could also make the point and it would have made the point that yes, sometimes we don't win that battle, but it's not worth not fighting it because she does fight it to the very last second and eventually overcomes it. But I just think that the tone of the movie suggested a different ending than what we got. And I almost wonder if the studio stepped in and was like, we can't have that be the last thing that happens in this movie. Mm. <laughs> um, that's really what it felt like to me. And like, obviously would have been a much sadder film, but I think it would have served the point of the story a lot more. And I think either studios or writers can brush up against it and then maybe not, maybe pull back in a way that feels uh, slightly disingenuous. Like, Yes, obviously, I am not rooting for this person to do this to themselves, and I obviously would not mm. do that in real life. But it's also, you know, it does, it, that it happens in real life. Like, and I get that we're not supposed to necessarily go to the, you know, we do go to the movies as escapism, but at the same time, I think, you know, a movie can present the harsh realities of living and still give us catharsis within that i mean fucking spielberg has done it before schindler's list that's not an easy movie to watch it's not a fun movie to watch it's not a movie i just throw on because i want to watch it but it's super important it's a super important movie that deals with obviously some very 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 heavy subject matter in a, a very respectful way in a way that honors the reality of the situation and the survivors and the victims of what happened like I don't know. I think that there's been, I, you know, I'm not saying every movie needs to kill off its main character or be about these <laughs> super heavy mental health topics or, you know, uh, a tr world atrocities. But if you're going to do it, commit. Like, that's all I have to say about it is like, mm. 
you know, if if you're if you're gonna make me think something, follow through with it because otherwise, I see, I like, I kind of see it as like, uh, you wanted to, you wanted to have your cake and eat it too, with that, and I don't know how I feel about it. And I think Jaws, <clears throat> while obviously dealing with maybe not quite as heavy a topic as uh, the Nighthouse, um, but I mean, Jaws deals with PTSD and. The lack of support veterans get for that, that's not an easy subject to, you know, that goes down easy. And and it presents the eventual outcome of veterans, of a lot of veterans who have gone with untreated PTSD. And yes, it is not as, uh, you know, I think relatable um, in, in big quotes as if you know, Rebecca Hall takes her own life with a gun. That's something that happens every day, multiple times around the world and affects millions of people. People, you know, the amount of people who have used shark as a a, a way to, to commit suicide is v- probably pretty low, um, if, if not existent at all. But mm. what that stands for is veterans who have taken their own lives because of their unchecked PTSD. That's, that's, mm-hmm. that's what it is. Um, and that's, you know, I'm sure you listening to this, you feel a certain way about hearing me talk about this kind of bluntly, and I feel a certain way talking about it. It has definitely changed the tone of this episode. Um, but Jaws does it, and it does it in this way that reveals itself very subtly, very slowly, and still respectful, I think. Like, I don't think it's, I don't think it's, 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 you know, disrespectful to veterans or to people who struggle with PTSD or intrusive thoughts or anything like that. Um, And yeah, it's got a 1970s version of that, and we know a lot more now, um, but it's not as insensitive as it could be. That's for damn sure. Mm -hmm. And also... Uh, it, 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 it you know not that this is always an entertaining subject but it's still an entertaining movie dealing with these heavy subjects like there's a way to do it and still be respectful to the heavier topics you're 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 addressing within your film but I think there's something blocking filmmakers from being able to do that nowadays and it really gets under my skin because I think that a lot of movies would do a lot better, like whether they're blockbuster or horror or what, to follow through with some fairly heavy reality of the themes that it's exploring. Not all of them have to do it. Obviously, there's room for happy endings in movies. Obviously, there's room for hope in movies. But sometimes, if a tone is telling you, hey, this is going to happen, brace yourself, and then that thing doesn't happen, it's really frustrating. Mm. Yeah, I I think that's a, I mean, it's a really, really good point. And I think that we'll probably get into it even more when we're, when we're talking about Quint's death, like why it does kind of feel, mm, when I say it feels right, it's not that I want it to happen, but it it feels right that it is Quint um, that, that dies. And I think we'll, we'll get onto our reasoning for that because I mean, with everything that that Quint has experienced and him being on this, as we've spoken about before, sort of, you know, one man mission to to get revenge on on the sharks because of what happened to him. Like, how sustainable is that? Like, Mm -hmm. as a way of life, it's it's going to backfire on on him at, at some point. And 
that's that's what we see that's what we see happen and yes this is you know the set the situation that he's in like is unusual and he says many times you know this is nothing like he's seen before this shark is acting in a way that he hasn't seen before but it's there is something quite i think oddly poetic about the way this film this film ends and it being quint you know that that does die and i'm i'm glad that you know because of because of the circumstances then that that hooper survives and, mm-hmm. and obviously brody survives as well um but it, yeah, just that that not being afraid to to go there when it feels right, mm-hmm. I think is 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 very important. And I I mean, you know, not to bring this onto one of my other favorite topics at the moment, which is West Side Story, but <laughs> I'm gonna do yeah. it um, <laughs> because I obviously that's an existing musical, it's an existing film, and it's also based on Romeo and Juliet. So right. you kind of know how this is right. gonna shake out. But I have seen some people who are apparently now just realizing that Spielberg made this incredible version of West Side Story last year because it's available to watch on on Disney Plus now uh, and other streaming services that people are sort of like watching it. And actually, this is their first exposure to West Side Story. And they're like, oh, I loved it. But why did Tony have to die at the end? Mm -hmm. Uh, Spoiler, I guess. Spoiler, (laughs) Romeo and Juliet. Spoiler for (laughs) Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. For a piece of literature that is <laughs> hundreds of years yeah. old. Uh, spoiler, spoiler for a um, 500-year-old play. <laughs> but it is, you know, uh, we'll save our thoughts on West Side Story for perhaps uh, in, in-depth thoughts about West Side Story for a, a, a later date, perhaps. Yeah. But um, it is uh, right that he dies at the end, not just because of what it is, what it is based on, but of all the stuff that, that that has led up to that point, mm-hmm. like what mm-hmm. life would he and Maria have had, you know, uh, constantly on the run? Like he has taken another person's life as well. Like that's, you know, same, same with Quint, this, this kind of lifestyle, this, mm-hmm. this choice that you've made is, is not sustainable. That's not a way that things that, that can continue. And obviously, you know, the romantic in us wants, this young couple, you know, star-crossed lovers to have their their happy ending, but it it just doesn't happen. And I've 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 genuinely seen that as like a critique of the film of, you know, uh, why did it have to end that way? And and I'm I'm a big fan of the take it up with the bard. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> take it up with William Shakespeare. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm a big fan <laughs> of the. Title. Uh... <laughs> yeah, look, just. Just take it up with uh, with the bard. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, I, I'm a, a big fan of the original West Side Story. And like, yes, the ending is sad. It's meant to be sad. And it doesn't matter how many times you've seen it or how many times I have already watched the remake since it has been more readily available to me. Yep. You do wish it to have a different ending because that's a sort of like human part of us, isn't it? Like we want that happy ending, but it wouldn't be right for that film. It wouldn't be right for that story for it to have that happy ending. So it's a delicate balance because it's not like we're we're not wishing these you know bad things to happen to yes. these people. We're not absolutely elated when it happens, but if it is what feels right for the story, actually having like the balls to go through with it, I think is is you know. In in the case of West Side Story and in the case of, of Jaws with Quint Dine, I think it is it is right that, yeah. that that happens. And I mean, whilst um, 
whilst you were talking, I did like have to look up like does Kylo Ren die in Star Wars? I also looked it up. <laughs> really bugging me that I couldn't remember, and he does. And my quick Google search also reminded me that there are about like two or three instances before he actually dies yeah. that you think he's dead and then he isn't. Yeah. And I cannot tell you how frustrating that was for me because I'm like, if you're gonna kill him off, like please just do it. I I yeah. I think it's the right thing to do, but you can't have all these other moments of like they're dead oh psych not really they're alive and even like with the same character you know having moments like that over and over again where you think they're dead and then they're not and then you think they're dead and then they're not and then oh surprise they actually are because it's just uh, i just i just feel like it's it's toying with the audience in a way that is completely unnecessary oh, what were they doing just like just pad out the runtime yeah. like create some more drama or tension along the way i don't know if it, it, it had the complete opposite effect for me because it took all the tension and all the emotion out of the film because by that point i simply just didn't care i was like i hope they all die <laughs> at this point honestly just so i can leave <laughs> yeah i mean to bring it back to star wars and a much quote lighter topic uh, although everyone does die um rogue one everyone dies at the end of that movie all the characters get exploded by the Death Star at the end of the movie. Um, and then after that happens, Darth Vader then kills a shit ton of rebels. Um, and that is, like, The Night House is a very niche horror film that only a handful, not a handful of people saw, but it's not Star Wars level popular, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, one, I think that's more of an argument to me of like why it should have committed to the downer ending because it was never gonna be the next star wars or even you know halloween franchise horror film um <laughs> but a movie at that level committed to that ending uh which mm -hmm. i really was surprised in a very pleasant way i one i think rogue one is the best of the disney star wars films um but uh it was really neat to see a big blockbuster movie that was kind of sad and also hopeful. Like, yes, it ends with the Rebels getting the plans for the Death Star that leads to the, the big turn that happens in A New Hope. But also it comes at a big, big, big cost for the Alliance. And I like that. Like, that feels, it makes it feel like it had stakes and it makes it feel like one, that these people did not sacrifice their lives in vain, even though they're fake, obviously. Um, but it it also d feels real. Like, you know how many people have risked their lives and lost their lives in dire combat circumstances? Not to, like, get too real, but, like, it's happening right now um, mm -hmm. for, you know, the greater good of you know not obviously just their their country of the you i'm talking about the ukraine russia situation happening right now if you are listening years down the road hopefully that has been solved by now um but uh it, just the greater good of humanity like people who were innocent people who were just basically invaded right like there are so many people sacrificing them and not to do the like weird twitter thing where it's like the ukrainians are like the rebels because that's like sucks it's stupid don't do that but <laughs> at the same time like that is a real world example that we are living through right here in 2022 and then when we go and watch you know something like rogue one it's very relatable we can see 
that, uh, you know, oh, hey, these people in whatever, you know, uh, combat situation or, or wartime situation where they are, you know, innocent and have been invaded are fighting for that freedom back. And some of them are making it and some of them aren't. And that's how the real world works. So when movies that are, you know, obviously inherently fake and fictional, and then when you bring in the sci-fi element of something like Star Wars, draw from those real world things, it makes you buy into that fake world way more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm also a big fan of of rogue one i think it's certainly one of the the better ones and i i liked it for a number of reasons i think because it based its entire pretty much its entire story on like two lines from the opening crawl yeah. of a new hope <laughs> where i was like the rebels you know stole the plans for the for the death star yeah. or whatever and it's like great I, you know that's the kind of expanded universe stuff i i want and i think actually works mm-hmm. and it also because of that huge sacrifice and that really sad powerful impactful ending mm-hmm. it 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 kind of made me watch a new hope in a slightly different way as well because obviously it, it you know it comes it comes after and and they certainly orchestrate the the end to you know really tap into our feelings of of nostalgia and and you know here's some things you recognize from <laughs> from uh from the other star war mm-hmm. uh yeah. which you know can become a bit grating the more obvious that becomes but it does sort of make you go okay well now watching like this film in the context of that you know gap that has been filled in in the story it does change it uh, a little bit because you now know you know the names and faces of of the people who made that big sacrifice like for the greater good so yeah it's there's i mean it'll be interesting i'm super interested like what you will think of jaws 2 and we are going to be watching them soon for other podcast appearances Mm -hmm. that we're doing Plus, we're going to cover the sequels when we uh, when we wrap Jaws, not minute by minute, because I can't I can't do that. Right. Um, but there is a lot of like, obviously, you know, Brody is the only character from uh, sort of of the main trio right. who is who is in the first film, and then in in Jaws two, um, we get the, some of the peripheral characters as well who who appear in it, um, but watching watching that obviously the as you would because it's a sequel with the context of like what came before it really changes a, a lot about what uh who brody is now as a person like he is you know dealing with this ptsd of mm-hmm. what of what of what happened to him and i think that is one of the most interesting and, and fascinating things about jaws 2 and is a reason why i think it is not as good as jaws obviously but like is a a good and sort of serviceable sequel Mm. um because it takes particularly it's an aspect of the character that i find interesting as as well um because we've sort of seen it with how what quint went through informs who he is as a as a person in this film and he is the character character who dies and obviously Brody is is the one who sort of you know finally takes down the shark at the end so it's interesting to then see that that stuff play out with 
you know, a nightmare scenario of the same thing happening again and, and how Brody's experiences and the things that he went through in this film, like, change how he is in in that film. So I'm interested uh, <laughs> what you're going to think of it. Um, Me too. Also the other sequels, but I, yeah, I, I've got a feeling that for probably for that reason, and it's Roy Scheider, I think you're probably going to dig Jules too, but I... The other ones uh, <laughs> just go in with very, very low expectations. I'm excited. Uh, <laughs> um, I think that, did you have anything else with this scene in particular? I know we got off on a big tangent about like, the, <laughs> but I, th- I think it serves this scene as far as tonal control goes. And then yeah, uh, obviously what originally happened with, with Hooper in the script. Um, so mm. uh, yeah. Did you have anything about this scene in particular? The only other thing that I that I've written down that we haven't really mentioned is that I've I've never noticed until watching it today that we actually go above water for mm-hmm. a brief the briefest of, of glimpses. And I yeah. think it is so brief that that's I probably would have seen it before and been like, Oh yeah, there's you know, a quick shot of Quint and Brody but never really sort of ascribed much more to it um than that. But I think it's it's interesting both in the sort of like contrast of you know, like I was saying right at the start in, in how dark it is underwater and then how like light and bright and sunny it is uh, ab- above the water. And also just we see Quint and we see pretty much just Brody's arm really. And they're just looking on and they don't say anything. And they are just kind of watching helplessly as they see the barrels like coming towards coming towards where where they know Hooper is and, you know, in the cage that sort of is, you know, attached to the boat like it's it's right there and they're kind of just having to watch watch this happen but i think it's just interesting for like a quick moment to sort of see the above water perspective as well and it does sort of come right after we've seen that the shark is coming towards the cage um that we then get this shot of you know all the you know hooper can see this big imposing terrifying shark coming towards him and all Quint and, and Brody are seeing above the water is is these barrels that we're so familiar with by this point as well. They almost don't register, but, you know, the barrels are the shark. So I just, I enjoy that sort of, uh, that contrast. And, and just the, you know, even though it is brief uh, and, and sort of quick glimpse of the other characters, I like that it is in there. And I think it, it serves a purpose in this scene as well. Yeah. Um, the only thing I have is... Is Hooper wearing a wedding ring? Do you know what? I <laughs> I noticed this like a while back, but I didn't I didn't say anything because it's not it's never mentioned at yeah. any point in the film that Hooper might have a have a spouse. And I feel like because he is, you know, he's about to go on this like long expedition at sea, isn't he? And and uh he doesn't sort of seem to mind uh, that he's putting himself in in these dangerous situations. Right. He doesn't have the same ties that that Brody has. I think if he did, it it would have come up. Mm-hmm. So, and if it was important to the character, it would have it would have come up as well. So maybe it was it was meant to be a part of the story that was that was cut. I mean, we can sort of fill in fill in the gaps and say like uh, maybe he is like going through a divorce or, so, or yeah. something like you know he mentions about the, the person who broke his heart like maybe mm-hmm. that was uh 
maybe <laughs> maybe that was Mrs. Hooper. We don't. I don't know. Yeah. It's this is obviously all like speculation at this point. But yeah, interesting. I had I had noticed that a few weeks ago as well, but had not <laughs> not mentioned it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I so I noticed it in one of the shots here, and that was one of my shreds of proof that this was not Richard Dreyfus. But then I was like, oh, maybe he is wearing it earlier in the film, and I went back and confirmed. Yeah. And I was like, wow, we never talk about that ever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. We can now give Hooper a whole, like, backstory (laughs) backstory of, like, you know, things have fallen apart with the missus. So he's going for a uh, a long expedition at sea with his other love, the sharks. The sharks. Yep. Oh, the other thing that I learned, it was Ron Taylor who shot the the who was holding the camera outside of the cage Mm. so uh Mm -hmm. shout out to hero yeah shout out to that guy because like (laughs) it really this is a weird 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 comparison but i just watched these three films uh in preparation for the fourth but there's that scene in one of the jackass movies where steve-o goes into the shark infested waters and uh, those aren't even great whites. And it is one of the scariest things I've ever seen happen to a human being. Um, there's a shark. There's a scene. If you haven't seen it, Steve-O from Jackass jumps in shark-infested waters. He also jabs a fish hook through his cheek before he does that, which is pretty gross. But uh, <laughs> uh, I think there are they Mako sharks in that movie. Steve-O sharks. Steve-O swam with sharks without a cage kind of a lot, is what I've just learned. Anyway, in the film, <laughs> uh, in the film, there's this shark. I think it's a Mako shark. It is making a beeline for his foot. And he, by the grace of God, kicks it with his other foot on accident, just kicking by treading water. He kicks it. And it swims away, and it doesn't bite him. But he full-on is about to lose his foot to this shark in this scene Mm. in the movie. And so, because I had just recently rewatched those films, watching this and really, like, putting myself in, like, oh, someone not in a cage filmed this, uh, really made me be like, that's the scariest thing I've ever seen in a movie, actually. Like, just... (laughs) thinking about that like he's so he's so unprotected with one of the biggest predators in the world just chilling just hanging out Mm. yeah i mean (laughs) braver people than me for sure (laughs) yeah (laughs) yep uh also there is a video on steve-o's youtube account called my 10 craziest shark encounters so uh, I mean, he's got a top. He's got a top ten. <laughs> yeah, look, if you've had enough shark encounters to make a top ten, I, I've got concerns. <laughs> yeah, which implies that some got left out. It's not my yeah. ten shark encounters. It's my ten craziest ones. It could <laughs> so just be SEO. It's just, you but... know, yeah. There's one where, like, he's just playing chess with the shark and it's just real chill, which wasn't crazy at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the seventh shark seal. <laughs> oh, no. How stupid. I guess you could just call it the seventh seal and have it be the animal of the seal. Yeah. 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 
But I liked the <laughs> inclusion of shark in there, <laughs> the just in case people didn't get it. <laughs> Got a little black robe on. <laughs> I mean, just the seventh shark is is another option. But... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh... Yeah. Uh, also in my Googling today, I found this picture of a signed Jaws thing that's signed by John Williams, Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfus, Peter Benchley, and I can't, I think it's Spielberg on the far right there, but yeah. uh, my favorite thing about this is that Peter Benchley drew a little shark on the shark. I love that. <laughs> it's real cute. Yep. <laughs> I hope he signed all his autographs. Like I that. also hope that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it's adorable. Yeah. It's a very cute drawing of a shark. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, that has nothing to do with the scene. I just, I was looking something else up about the scene and saw that and I was like, he drew a little shark. <laughs> <laughs> On the terrifying looking shark as well. Yeah. Oh, maybe it's not a shark. Maybe it's a cloud in the shape of a killer shark. Uh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he's drawn, right? Yep. Uh, Sarah, did you have anything to plug? <laughs> Besides Google Peter Benchley's um, signature? That is exactly what I am doing right this second, and he does draw a little shark does he? with his signature. Yeah. <laughs> it's real cute. <laughs> I love that you knew that that's what I would be Googling. <laughs> it absolutely was. <laughs> this one looks, this one looks, um, this shark looks really concerned in this signature that I've just found. I'll, I'll send it to you, but. Yeah. Yep. He, it also <laughs> looks, looks real worried. It looks kind of like that one that I showed you the other week of the, uh, that Steve Zahn movie where he does the goofy laugh. Cause it's got oh, the weird yeah. overbite. <laughs> yeah. That's another one where he's just drawn like the fin. Oh, that's cute. I mean, that's very cool. Yeah. I w will start signing things like this now, uh, I feel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not to copy, but probably the best signature I've seen. So. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> he's like, I'm acknowledging the thing that people know me for. So <laughs> I'm just going to draw Little Shark on all of my signatures. Yep, for $650, you can get your own Peter Benchley shark. Small price to pay. Well, I mean, it's not a small price to pay, but it's actually a very large price to pay. Uh, I mean, I could just print out one of these pictures and pretend, yes. but... <laughs> uh, that's, that's the way around it. Um, do I have anything to plug? Uh, yes. I have, I'm just checking if it has, if it has gone up. Uh, it has. Okay, great. I uh, wrote something recently about, uh, so the jumping off point was like some movies that are like Ocean's Eleven, but this just gave me a really good excuse to write about some really good heist films, nice. uh, which is a genre I enjoy uh, quite a bit. So I got to write about another Robert Shaw film, The Sting, uh, which the is Sting. such a great, such a great film. I love that movie. Uh, the original... <laughs> it's so good. Uh, the original Italian job as well. Another Spielberg film in Catch Me If You Can. Um, an excellent film called Rafifi. Have you ever seen it? I've never seen it. Oh, MJ. It's so good. Uh, 
was recommended to me uh, by my friend Barry, and he was like, you have to include this in your list. Uh, we'll not be friends with you if you don't. And I was like, okay, I trust your film opinion. So I bought it, watched it, and I was like, this is fantastic. It's It was like an instant five-star film for me. Wow. So this can become my new sorcerer where I'm just like telling everyone <laughs> to watch it. Um, but it's like, the best thing I can say about it is like, really, you can see where Quentin Tarantino decided to make Reservoir Dogs oh, interesting. based off of this film, because it's the, you unlike Reservoir Dogs, you do see the heist, but mm-hmm. it is kind of like the before and after the the heist is sort of as important as, as the thing itself. And the heist sequence itself is around 30 minutes and it's almost completely silent. There's no Whoa. musical dialogue, it's just like... Yeah, it's just kind of like the ambient sounds of... Uh, oh, it's just... You know, I, I said this a couple of weeks ago, I think, on an episode where I was like, I love scenes that are just like a procedure, like where you just see something happening, a process, and they have this really like great bit of them just like cracking into this safe that just ticked all of my boxes for me. <laughs> so yeah. that's uh, my my hard recommend of the week is to, to go and watch Rafifi, but also uh, to read my article that I wrote on Looper because a lot of other great films in that list. And now I want to watch The Sting again. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's a, um, there's a uh, in the, the Empire podcast that Tarantino and Edgar Wright did that's like three hours long, they talked about mm. Tarantino talks about some British heist movie that I wanted to watch about a guy who gets like trapped in the bank vault, basically. Um, Ooh, and it sounded really good. I don't remember the name of it, and I can't find the list of movies that they because they, I mean, they just started their their pandemic project was that they would watch a bunch of old British movies and talk to each other about them. So nice. uh, <laughs> they just start naming off all the shit that they watch. And that was one of them that I really wanted to see. Uh, and I don't remember. Mm. I, man, I wish I would have written it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if you can, uh, if you can remember, that sounds like something I would also like to watch. So <laughs> please let me know yep. um, at some point. Um, yeah, you can find uh, the article that I wrote and all my other stuff that I've written for Looper as well. Uh, looper.com forward slash author forward slash Sarah Buttery. Um, I've got some other good stuff coming out soon, but that's the, probably by the time this episode is out, there'll be loads more stuff. But yeah, that was something that's uh, gone up recently, at least in time of recording, that I was particularly proud of. So yeah, that's uh, that's all for me, I think. Nice. Uh, yeah, I was on, it's out now. It came out today as of time, at a time of recording. Um, so it, it will definitely be available for you to listen to. I was on The Bond We Share, hosted by Allison and Adam, um, to talk about Moonraker, because it is a James Bond movie with Jaws in it. Um, And, (laughs) yeah, got to talk about that, and uh, it was a good time. I am, like, a low-key James Bond nerd, so uh, it was was neat to kind (laughs) of go and talk about something that's a little unexplored for me as far as, like, talking about this stuff, because it's not not super vocal about my uh fandom for it but i've seen all of the movies some of them multiple times and watched all of the special features on the uh the blu-rays for (laughs) all the films through casino royale so uh yeah uh no through quantum of solace yeah um the the bond 50 set minus specter is or minus skyfall uh is what Mm -hmm. i've seen all the special features for and uh yeah it was neat to go and do that so um, go give them a listen and a follow on Twitter. I was also should be out 
I think, by the time uh, this is out on Esoterica Cinema to talk about the Fast Eddie Felsen uh, films starring Paul Newman. That is The Hustler and The Color of Money, which is... I would say a very overlooked uh, Scorsese film. I think people consider it a lesser Scorsese film, which uh, the idea of there being a lesser Scorsese film is crazy to me, but uh, man, that's a good movie. Wow, it's good. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) One of the best sports movies I think I've seen in a long time. And I I tweeted that I wanted to go on a podcast and talk about it. And they uh, were like, hey, that's us. So uh, yeah. I was able to talk about those. They're very good. Um, Other than that, Real Perspective, um, R-E-E-L Perspective. I have my computer back, so the Cobra Kai Season 4 episode is three months late, but it's up now. (laughs) Um, I think we're going to do a Batman's episode somewhat soon. I need to see the film still at time of record, um, but I would like to talk about it because I like Matt Reeves' movies, and I like Batman, so I think it would be a good... We we don't really do m- much uh, much uh, cape shit on there anymore because uh, I think <laughs> the lot of us are kind of checked out on superhero stuff for the moment, so um, we don't really have anything interesting to add to the conversation, but the Batman looks like it might have... might be a, 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 enough of a break from the 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 current fair that uh we'll have some stuff to talk about so yeah uh be on the lookout for a batman episode uh of real perspective somewhat soon that's all i have for personal uh stuff but if you want to get in touch with the show you can find us on social media at jaws for a minute and you can find us on twitter and finstagram under that handle um if you do not have social media, you can email us at jawsforaminute at gmail.com. Um, on those social media websites, in our bios, you will find our link tree. And our link tree has all sorts of cool stuff that you can uh, click on, such as links to where you can listen to the podcast, as well as links to buy merch on TeePublic and Redbubble. We have two designs that were designed by Alex uh, at HexGhosts on Twitter. Um and you can buy a plethora of products that feature one of those two logos on them. Um, you can download our theme song, which was written and performed by Kristen Falls. And you can find a link to her Bandcamp to purchase the full song, which is like two and a half minutes, I think. And uh, you can follow her on Instagram at Kristen Falls Music. Um, you can also, if you want to just donate uh, to the show and buy us some... Uh, caffeine or herbal tea in my case you can uh you can donate a minimum of three dollars through our coffee page which is once again linked in our our link tree and if you are a new donor you will be entered to win a t-shirt um and if you'd like to support the show for free you can give us a rate or review or a subscription on apple or spotify or google or wherever you get your podcasts um good pods is, is another one that seems to be a, a growing in popularity uh, as, as a podcatcher. Um, if you would like to follow us uh, individually on Twitter, you can find Sarah at Sarah Buttery. That's S-A-R-A-H-B-U-D-D-E-R-Y. You can find me at MJ Smith 891 and read our little tweets about our lives. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's it uh until next week it's jaws o'clock somewhere chapter two the carpet bag 
I stuffed a shirt or two into my old carpet bag, tucked it under my arm, and started for Cape Horn in the Pacific. Quitting the good city of Old Manhattan, I duly arrived in New Bedford. It was a Saturday night in December. Much was I disappointed upon learning that the little packet for Nantucket had already sailed, and that no way of reaching that place would offer till the following Monday. As most young candidates for the pains and penalties of whaling stop at this same New Bedford, thence to embark on their voyage, it may as well be related that I, for one, had no idea of doing so. For my mind was made up to sail in no other than a Nantucket craft, because there was a fine, boisterous something about everything connected with that famous old island, which amazingly pleased me. Besides, though New Bedford has of late been gradually monopolizing the business of whaling, and though in this matter poor old Nantucket is now much behind her, yet Nantucket was the great original, the tire of this Carthage, the place where the first dead American whale was stranded. Where else but from Nantucket did those aboriginal whalemen first sally out in canoes to give chase to the Leviathan? And where but from Nantucket, too, did that first adventurous little sloop put forth partly laden with imported cobblestones, so goes the story, to throw at the whales in order to discover when they were nigh enough to risk a harpoon from the bowsprit. Now having a night, a day, and still another night following before me in New Bedford, ere I could embark for my destined port, it became a matter of concernment where I was to eat and sleep meanwhile. It was a very dubious looking, nay, a very dark and dismal night, bitingly cold and cheerless. I knew no one in the place. With anxious grapnels, I had sounded my pocket and only brought up a few pieces of silver. So wherever you go, Ishmael, said I to myself as I stood in the middle of a dreary street shouldering my bag and comparing the gloom towards the north with the darkness towards the south, wherever in your wisdom you may conclude to lodge for the night, my dear Ishmael, be sure to inquire the price and don't be too particular. With halting steps, I paced the streets and passed the sign of the crossed harpoons, but it looked too expensive and jolly for there. Further on, from the bright red windows of the Swordfish Inn, there came such fervent rays that it seemed to have melted the packed snow and ice from, ev from before the house, for everywhere else the congealed frost lay ten inches thick in a hard asphaltic pavement. Rather weary for me, when I struck my foot against the flinty projections, because from hard, remorseless service, the soles of my boots were in a most miserable plight. Too expensive and jolly, again, I thought pausing one moment to watch the broad glare in the street and hear the sounds of the tinkling glasses within. But go on, Ishmael, said I at last. Don't you hear? Get away from before the door. Your patched boots are stopping the way. So on I went. I now by instinct followed the streets that took me waterward. For there, doubtless, were the cheapest, if not the cheeriest, inns. Such dreary streets! Blocks of blackness, not houses, on either hand. And here and there a candle, like a candle moving about in a tomb. In this hour of the night, of the last day of the week, that quarter of the town proved all but deserted. But presently I came to a smoky light proceeding from a low, wide building, the door of which stood invitingly open. It had a careless look, as if it were meant for the uses of the public. So, entering, the first thing I did was to stumble over an ash box in the porch. Ha, thought I, ha, as the flying particles almost choked me, are these ashes from that destroyed city, Gamora? But the crossed harpoons and the swordfish? This, then, 
must needs be the sign of the trap. However, I picked myself up and hearing a loud voice within, pushed on and opened a second interior door. It was a church and the preacher's text was about the blackness of darkness and the weeping and wailing and teeth gnashing there. Ha, Ishmael, I muttered, backing out. Wretched entertainment at the sign of the trap. Moving on, I at last came to a dim sort of light not far from the docks and heard a forlorn creaking in the air, and looking up saw a swinging sign over the door with a white painting upon it, faintly representing a tall straight jet of misty spray and these words underneath. The Spouter in Peter Coffin. Coffin? Spouter? Rather ominous in that particular connection, I thought. But it is a common name in Nantucket, they say. And I suppose this Peter here is an emigrant from there. As the light looked so dim and the place for the time looked quiet enough, and the dilapidated little wooden house itself looked as if it might have been carted here from the ruins of some burnt district, and as the swinging sign had a poverty-stricken sort of creak to it, I thought that here was the very spot for cheap lodgings and the best of pea coffee. It was a queer sort of place, a gable-ended old house, one side palsied, as it were, and leaning over sadly. It stood on a sharp, bleak corner where that tempestuous wind Euroclodon kept up a worse howling than ever it did about poor Paul's tossed craft. Euroclodon, nevertheless, is a mighty pleasant zephyr to anyone indoors, with his feet on the hob quietly toasting for bed. In judging of that tempestuous wind called Euroclodon, says an old writer of whose works I possess the only copy extant, it maketh a marvelous difference whether thou lookest out at it from a glass window where the frost is all on the outside, or whether thou observest it from the, that sashless window where the frost is on both sides, and of which the white death is the only glazier. True enough, thought I, as this passage occurred to my mind, old black letter, thou reasonest well. Yes, these eyes are windows, and this body of mine is the house. What a pity they didn't stop up the clinks and the crannies, though, and thrust in a little lint here and there. But it's too late to make any improvements now. The universe is finished, the copestone is on, and the chips were carted off a million years ago. Poor Lazarus there, chattering his teeth against the curbstone for his pillow and shaking off his tatters with his shiverings. He might plug up both ears with rags and put a corn cob into his mouth, and yet that would not keep out the tempestuous Euroclidon. Euroclidon, says old Dives in his red silken wrapper. He had a redder one afterwards. Pooh, pooh. What a fine frosty night. How Orion glitters. What northern lights. Let them talk of their oriental summer climes of everlasting conservatories. Give me the privilege of making my own summer with my own coals. But what thinks Lazarus? Can he warm his blue hands by holding them up to the grand northern lights? Would not Lazarus rather be in Sumatra than here? Would he not far rather lay him down lengthwise along the line of the equator? Yea, ye gods. Go down to the fiery pit itself in order to keep out this frost. Now that Lazarus should lie stranded there on the curbstone before the door of dives, this is more wonderful than that an iceberg should be moored to one of the Maluka's. Yet dives himself, he too lives like a czar in an ice palace made of frozen size, and being a president of a temperance society, he only drinks the tepid tears of orphans. 
But no more of this blubbering now. We are going a-wailing, and there is plenty of that yet to come. Let us scrape the ice from our frosted feet and see what sort of place this spouter may be.